0: Hey, everybody, it's Ed. Before we get started, two brand new podcast supporters I want to thank, Garrett Gordy and Cindy Trim. Both Garrett and Cindy signed up to support the podcast through Patreon, which is a monthly support option. There's also one-time support options, but you can check all that out at mountainprairiecom support. No pressure on that at all. I just appreciate everybody listening, I know, devoting an hour, hour and a half of your time is a big deal. It's a big deal for me. So I'm sure it's a big deal for y'all as well. And the fact that you guys listen to this thing every other week or so is very, very, very cool to me. So thank you very much. Second thing, the Bozeman event is coming up kind of soon, a little less than two months, Bozeman, Montana, August 30th at the Ellen Theater. It's going to be great. And the tickets are selling very, very well, which I'm excited about. But There's still some left. Go to mountainprairie.com slash bozeman to check it out. Thanks a lot. Hey, this is Ed Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative individuals who are shaping the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, adventurers, pretty much anyone who's doing important work, has an interesting story, and loves the American West. My guest today is Heather Hansman. Heather is a freelance writer and editor whose work explores the intersection of science, adventure, and culture. Her new book, Down River, Into the Future of Water in the West, should be required reading for everyone who enjoys this podcast. It strikes the perfect balance of being entertaining and educational while examining all sides of the many issues facing the West water supply. There are few topics in the West as divisive and emotional as water, and in her book, Heather provides a balanced overview of all the issues, delving deep into the substance of water-related arguments without crossing over into the mind-numbing jargon that defines most water-related writing. The book follows Heather's 730-mile float down the length of the Green River, starting at the base of Wyoming's Wind River Mountains and ending at the confluence of the Green and Colorado Rivers in Utah. Along the way, she meets with a wide range of western water stakeholders, ranchers, farmers, river guides, government employees, scientists, conservationists, and more, and she digs into their sometimes competing interests, fighting for their share of water in the West. But the book is far from an academic examination of water law. Heather paddled two-thirds of the river completely alone, so there's also a compelling adventure narrative that runs throughout the book. To understand most of the challenges facing the West, you really need to understand water, and this episode is a perfect place to start. Heather and I start out our conversation by laying out some of the basics around water, terminology that you may have heard thrown around but never truly understood. She explains how water in the West is a property right separate from the land and she explains some of the common language used when discussing water. We chat about why the Colorado River is overallocated and how trans-basin diversions have transformed much of the West into a very large and very complex plumbing system. For the second half of our conversation, we talk about Heather's professional path as a writer, journalist, and former river guide. We talk about why she moved West, her first gig as a professional writer, and some of the tricks of the trade she uses to force herself to write. And as usual, we discuss favorite books, films, and her favorite location in the West. As a guy who spends much of my day working with water and water rights, I can't thank Heather enough for writing this book. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I do. Maybe the first thing we can talk about is I'm curious how you decided that this was going to be the book you were going to write, because you're obviously a seasoned journalist. You've written and edited a ton. And personally, like the idea of trying to tackle Water in the West as as a first big book, I was impressed with your bravery. And so I'd love to hear kind of the, the moment or the series of events that led to you deciding, all right, this is the book I want to write.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. It's funny. You had asked about the kind of like piece of wisdom or advice. And I've been thinking about that a lot last night. And my dad's kind of go to wisdom is if you're going to be dumb, you'd better be tough. <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like that's The whole idea of like, what's your first? Why why tackle this whole thing? Um, and it's I feel like I don't have like a really great origin story for the book. Yeah. I had been, you know, I'd been working at magazines and I'd been freelancing for a couple years When this kind of happened, and I had a book agent reach out to me. She'd read some magazine stuff that I had written and kind of had said, You know, I found your work. I really like it. If you're interested in book stuff, maybe we should chat, you know, if you have ideas. And I emailed her back and was like, Yep, yep, yep. You know, I've got a million book ideas, you know, but I'm leaving to go on a river trip tomorrow. Can we talk in a week? And she emailed me back and was like, great. And I was like, OK, perfect. And I was like, oh, man, I need a book idea. <laughs> Sold this idea up the river. Um, and I left to go. It was a Yampa trip um, in Colorado. I left to go on the Yampa. And while I was out there, you know, I kind of had this. And I think, you know, thinking about back about it, part of it is maybe vanity. And like the idea of writing a book just seemed really cool to me. Oh, yeah. Um, it is cool. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, at this point I'm like, Oh, was that cool? (laughs) But, um, so I was on this trip and I had done, I got my, um, masters in environmental journalism at CU and my big thesis project there had been about snow melt and water and how that kind of carried down. And on this river trip, I was sort of like, Oh, maybe looking at water use could be, the way to kind of pull in all these things that I've been thinking about for a long time, you know, the yeah. recreation, I had been at river guide for a long time, you know, before I'd kind of gotten into media. Um, and this whole idea of kind of this big picture water in the West, what are we fighting about? What does it actually look like? Um, I was like, I think that is like this big story that I could tell. Um, and I came back and I ended up talking to the agent who turned out as like a total fairy godmother. She's amazing. Yeah fully lucked out I mean I don't like to, you know like luck is a weird thing but I feel like I lucked into her big time um and was kind of like oh yeah I have this idea what about if I write about how people fight about water in the west and cities versus farms and all that and she was kind of like that's a concept that's not a book like (laughs) figure out a way to tell that story (laughs) um and so then I started thinking about like okay what's the way what do I what are the kind of stories that I like to read how do I want to frame up this like big picture issue in a way that actually feels tangible and interesting and feels like a story. And that kind of this idea for what if I, what if I actually went and looked at the river?
0: Yeah. The, the way that it is structured, you know, with your river trip is it, just such a great way to tell it because you hit all the different aspects of, of water in the West. And I guess, Maybe, maybe we could start out. Can you just describe the trip you took that was kind of the the backbone of of this story you were telling? Can you talk about just kind of the overview of of the the adventure that that was the the i guess the scaffolding for this other story you're telling?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I paddled pretty much the whole Green river um which starts it's the biggest tributary of the Colorado and it starts in the wind River range in Wyoming um and it goes from there through sort of. Western Wyoming, which is mainly ranch lands and some oil and gas fields, and then it sort of dips into Colorado for a little bit in Dinosaur National Monument, and then you get into um, northeastern Utah, which is sort of like empty BLM, range again, like energy lands, and then it ends up in Canyonlands. It meets up with uh, the main stem of Colorado, kind of in the heart of Canyonlands. So I paddled, there's two big reservoirs on the river, there's Flaming Gorge Reservoir and um, Fontenelle Reservoir, and I didn't paddle all of the reservoirs, because that sort of seemed brutal and like I wasn't going to learn a ton from being yeah. out there. <laughs> but, um, but other than that, so I started up in the Wind Rivers, like Green River Lakes, which is kind of the first place you can really get a boat on um and did most of it in a pack raft i did and i was by myself for probably two thirds of it i had people come along for some chunks of it um my parents came for desolation canyon so we got a big raft there which was really fun and i did a chunk i did the gates of lador w- along with an oars trip which is a commercial yeah, trip yeah, yeah. To look at commercial rafting and recreation and that chunk of the world um, yeah, and sort of by paddling the length of the river, I was kind of looking at all the different user groups along the river. So you know, up in kind of middle of Wyoming, it's mainly historic cattle ranches, and then you get into some urban water use. So kind of as I paddled down, I was kind of looking at how those all those different groups. That was sort of the framework. I guess like the trip was the scaffolding, and then the framework was sort of like how do these different sort of broad groups? use water? Where are the tension points? What's kind of like the history and policy for why there are tension points? And what's it going to look like in a hotter, drier, more crowded future?
0: Well, I definitely want to dig into the the details of water because, you know, in my non-podcast job, I'm in land conservation and most of my daily work is around water rights with agriculture and trying to figure out that balance. And so I can, I love talking about that, but um, one one question I had real quick was there was it was almost a, it was just like a paragraph or two that in the book where you mentioned you know in in writing and nonfiction kind of adventure type writing there's there's obviously this genre of it going on adventure for adventure's sake but you had seen that when you're that that mostly applied to men it seemed like and a lot of times when there was a, a book about a woman going on an adventure it was. There was some side to it, like, oh, well, she's running away from something, or she needs to conquer these demons, or and and I love that that you call that out because I feel like I've seen that as well. And can you just talk a little bit about that, about kind of that that uh, how you went on this adventure for learning and for adventure's sake, and not as some like the the wild Cheryl Strayed type story yeah. that, that seems yeah. to be out there a lot.
1: I can talk a lot a lot of that.
0: Yes, do it. Yeah. <laughs> um,
1: yeah, I guess that um, from sort of a canon of literature standpoint, and also from sort of like my personal experience standpoint, that's something that feels really sort of narrow and frustrating to me, mm-hmm. this idea that there aren't, you know, you look at the kind of classic adventure stories and classic, you know, exploration stories, and even not the classic ones, even a lot of the sort of more recent ones. And when it's an adventure story, you know, 98% of the time, probably the narrator or the main character is a man. Yep. And obviously there's some history baked into that. But I think that this idea of like the people who want to be kind of proving themselves in the mountains or wherever it might be our dudes is, is sort of an, a tired trope mm-hmm. and one that didn't feel like it lined up with my reality. You know, like this is something, you know, i Worked kind of in outdoor recreation for a long time, and my friend group and most of the people in my life, especially the women, you know, like this is being outside as a part of our identity. It's not something that we're doing to like, I mean, there is sort of an aspect of proving yourself, I guess, but it's not something that's like out of our wheelhouse that we like are, you know, and I love Cheryl Strait. I think she's a great writer. Oh, yeah. But wild always kind of has become this touchstone in the past, you know, five or eight years since it came out of this idea of, like, okay, if a woman's going to go do this big epic, it's because she's, like, running away from some aspect of her past or has to kind of, and it's, like, kind of a flaring, like flailing newbie at the beginning. Sure. And that, that just felt like not, it felt like a minimization and it didn't feel like the truth. And even, you know, like, when I was pitching this book around, you'd kind of, like, talk about this idea about a trip and editors would be like, oh, it's, like, wild. <laughs> you're like, no, 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 no. no, no yeah (laughs) like the people in who had power in writing were kind of still stuck into that idea felt kind of important to me and it was a hard you know like that was something in writing the book that I wanted to and I struggle you know like I write a lot about women in sports and women outside kind of in my journalism work too and that line between like do you try to normalize it and not talk about it that much and just be like yep we went on this trip or do you try and be like hey I'm a woman doing this thing. This is why it isn't isn't a
0: big deal. Yeah, well, it, that makes perfect sense, and I, I love that. And it's almost like, like the the adventure for adventure's sake is underrepresented in in women's literature. You know, when the w- woman is the protagonist, but then yeah. it's not at all represented when the men are. Because, I mean, I've been on plenty of trips, and I'm probably guilty of it too. Where the whole reason I'm doing something is to try to prove to myself that I'm a tough guy. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and that, that story is just it, it's not really told with with men, and maybe there's an opportunity for me to write a book about how I'm running yeah. away from everything and trying. To, I would,
1: I would read that. Yeah, and I think <laughs> it's not. Like yeah, like it's it's sort of an oversimplification in both directions too.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, w- let's dive into the the water stuff because I, I, one of the many things I loved about your book is that you made these highly technical aspects of water in the West interesting and fun and enjoyable because in, in my daily work, I've found there's a really quick cutoff period when I'm talking to people where their eyes start glazing over okay. because it gets so technical and, and really boring. And so maybe could you just talk about at first just about water as a private property, right? Because I know a lot of people on the East Coast listen to this podcast and that's where I'm from. And in North Carolina, there's plenty of water, no big deal. You know, you got a river running through your farm. You do whatever the hell you want. But out here, it's a different deal. And what just because of water is on your ranch or your farm doesn't mean you own it. So, can you just give an overview of, of water as a p- private property right?
1: Yeah, definitely. And I think that, like you're saying, that's sort of the hard part in writing or even talking about this stuff is that there is so much kind of like background baseline information that you yeah. have to you have to kind of speak the language before you can be in the conversations. Um, but basically like the heart of that is that there's two different ways to allocate water. Um, and the first one is called riparian water rights. And that's what you know most people on the East Coast do. That's how it usually works in Europe. And basically that idea is that if you have water running through your property, you can use it within – there's a phrase for it I'm blanking on it right now – within reasonable use or something like that. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it's basically a property, right? If, you, if it's there, you own it. Um, and that works really well in places that are wet and where there's a lot of water, but it doesn't hold up that well in places where there isn't, you know, there aren't streams everywhere and there's not enough water to go around. Um, so in the Western, pretty much half of the U S we use what's called prior appropriations, which basically means that if you're the first person to put that water to beneficial use, then you get all your water before the next person in line gets theirs. Um, which sets up a hierarchy pretty much of water use. And that, again, it works really well when there's enough water to go around, but it starts to get complicated when there's not. And that sort of like, for me, I think one of the big frameworks for looking at this water in the West thing, is like, how does that, what happens when there's not enough water to go around?
0: Yeah. And that leads, it's almost like you're looking at my notes. My next question <laughs> is, <laughs> could you talk about how the Colorado river is over allocated? Cause I think anybody who's in the outdoor world hears these terms thrown around, but if they're like me, you just kind of, it goes in one ear out the other and there's other stuff to, so what does that mean that there's not enough water to go around?
1: Yeah. And this is, I mean, that's, I think like you are saying that that's the hard part with a lot of this is that there, it is jargony and it is kind of like you hear, you know, that there's this baseline thrum of like, there's not enough water, there's not enough water, but what does that actually mean and look like? Um, And I guess like, in the Colorado Basin in particular, there's sort of a couple good flashpoints, I think, that are, you know, I could probably be accused of, like, way oversimplifying this stuff. <laughs> but I think no, that... that's good. I like that. <laughs> the big thing is um, the Colorado River Compact, which was signed in 1922. And that's sort of, like, people call it the law of the river. And it's basically the high-level policy. Um, and in the 20s, when, you know, people had started really spreading west and, developing, especially kind of California, was starting to use a lot of the Colorado River water. The state's upstream because you know they had that those senior water rights. The states upstream started to get nervous that California was going to develop all the water before they could get in and use some. Um, and so the seven states in the basin, which is Colorado, Utah, Wyoming, Nevada, New Mexico, Arizona, how mean that? California. <laughs> I'm gonna say that um, they all got together and decided to basically break up the water in the river to make sure everyone got their fair share, and they broke it up into an upper and lower basin, and each basin got 7.5 million acre feet of water a year to use, and that's mm-hmm. basically an acre foot is you know an acre a football field with a foot of water deep on it. Yep. Um, and then because of a treaty in the '40s, Mexico got another 1.5 million acre feet to use every year. Um, and that this is where like the math, you know, the math gets a little slow, but it's important. Basically that, um, ends up being 16.5 million acre feet a year that's allocated. Um, and they did the math on that. They did the hydrology, that period kind of in the teens and early twenties ended up being basically the wettest hydrological period in history. And we now know that from looking back. On longer records, and you know we have now 100 years after that, um, and so they thought that they had about 18 million acre feet running through the basin each year, and it turns out that it's closer to 15. So if you have that kind of 15 million acre feet yearly average, and you have 16.5 million allocated, you're operating at a loss. And river managers call that structural deficit, and basically what it means is like more is given out than actually exists to go around.
0: So for people, and I, I'm asking these questions just. Thinking like, if I had been listening to this 10 years ago, what would I want to know? Because it's just, so, it's a different language. It's crazy. So, all right, there's this shortage of three and a half million or three million acre feet. So if if more is being used than there actually is, where does it come from? How How, how is it that cities continue to expand Still, in the West?
1: Part of that is because not everyone has used up every bit that's allocated. Mm-hmm. Um, so states like Wyoming, for instance, hasn't, you know, hasn't necessarily put all of their water rights to use. Or I guess people might have heard a lot of news about the Powell pipeline recently. Yes. There's this plan add to take water. I can't remember off the top of my head the exact numbers, but um, to take water out of Lake Powell for St. George and southern Utah, some cities that I think are going to be developed. And that would sort of be like the last chunk of Utah's legally allocated water. So there is a little bit of wiggle room still in water that hasn't been allocated. And then on top of that, we have really big storage reservoirs. So we have Lake Mead and Lake Powell, which are basically like the elasticity in the system that they can store. I think it's like four four years, you know, whatever that, you know, math works out with the 16 million acre feet. Powell and me can store about four years worth between the two of them mm-hmm. when they're full. But they haven't been. We've kind of like slowly been chipping down that storage supply
0: so one more thing I'd like to talk about just as far as definitions go is trans basin diversions, um, because I'm always amazed by how people on the front range of Colorado don't understand where their water comes from. And like, for example, I live in Colorado Springs and about 70 percent of the water, the supply to the Colorado Springs um, utility is being pumped in from the other side of the continental divide through this crazy, elaborate network of water pipes and pumps and tunnels. And so could you just talk a little bit about the kind of the plumbing system that makes up the West?
1: Yeah. And it's it's, talking about it like a plumbing system is sort of, I've been thinking about that a lot lately, kind of the thinking about a river or like a waterway, like a plumbing system versus like a habitat and how we, we kind of try and make them operate as both. Um, Yeah. And so to back up a little bit and talk about the way that the Colorado especially got allocated state by state you know, Colorado has a certain percentage of that water that it gets to use every year, but it doesn't necessarily say where it has to go. Mm -hmm. Um, So Colorado can pump, can and does pump water from the Colorado Basin, which runs, you know, west towards the Pacific, over the Continental Divide to Denver and Colorado Springs and Fort Collins, these kind of like big population centers because they're allowed to use that water within the state. Um, And then that water will, you know, if it's not consumptively used in the cities will then run off towards the east. So you're like effectively moving that water. And it's kind of insane if you think about it, that we built these huge tunnels through the Rockies. Yeah. To move water. It's crazy. But um, yeah, it's sort of, I mean, it's an interesting, and part of, or like one of the big things in thinking about this stuff, you always try to assume that people were doing the best mm-hmm. with the information that they had at the time. Like that's, I try to think about it that way. So mm-hmm. I think in a lot of ways, these people thought that they were really, you know, making these, population centers thrive and making it possible to live on the frontier. But they did, they are effectively re-engineering these rivers. Um, And, you know, the water cycle is regenerative to a degree. You know, there's sort of like a fixed amount of water in the world. But if you're sending it in different directions, it's not necessarily going to come back to where it was before.
0: Yeah, definitely. And and speaking of these big engineering projects, um, I loved your section on dams. And how you kind of examine both sides of the argument, because I think we probably have thought about this in the same way from the circles we run in that, you know, you, you think about like Patagonia, for example, all the publicity they put around how dams need to be torn down and they're not good for the environment. And but what I liked about yours is that you said, you know, you would kind of come in with that, that thought, that mindset on things but then the more you examined it and probably the more by, by thinking about, all right, these people had good intentions when they did this, you realize that there is a lot more of a gray area than just dams are bad or dams are great and we need to store as much water as possible. Could you talk about that kind of back and forth in your head as you as you explore both sides of the issue?
1: Yeah. And that like that's that to me is sort of the biggest takeaway of all this stuff is yeah. that you have to hold all these things in opposition in your head. Mm -hmm. that these like dams are bad and bad for the environment and totally destroy ecosystems. That is true. And also we need water storage because we need water is also true. (laughs) And it's, yeah. And it's not, I think like you had mentioned, I had kind of come, you know, and I'd come from the recreation side and I, you know, always think of myself as sort of like an environmentalist and a conservationist and kind of come in being like, Oh, take, you know, take down every dam we can. And I realized pretty quickly that that was like a really unsubtle and sort Mm -hmm. of narrow minded way of thinking about it um and that you can't if we were to take out like for instance Fontenelle dam which is the first one up on the green um was actually sort of an unnecessary dam they bought it they ended up, they built it because it was going to be water storage for agriculture and then it turns out that you can't really the area around there um is really dry and gravelly and it's not great for food crops mm-hmm. so yeah Like water storage situation that became pretty unnecessary. But then cities developed downstream of there. You know, Rock Springs and Green River, which are two of the biggest cities in Wyoming, which are not very big because they're in Wyoming, but (laughs) significant population centers there. Um, And then those cities now, they everywhere in the area gets water through the municipal water system, and they all get water. You know, in August because they're releasing a fixed amount of water out of the dam. And if that wasn't there, there's no way there could really be a city there. There's kind of two ephemeral streams that run through town. So it's this kind of like we've built up this society, really. you know, like you look at LA, you look at Salt Lake City, all these places are built up based on this idea that we can move water to where we want it, when we want it. And that's, you know, you can value judgment whether that's good or bad, but it's the reality. And you can't tell people to move out of Rock Springs, Wyoming, just because you feel like it.
0: And so when you were... Before you really got into the research on this book and you were, it was more of an idea. Did you think like when you wrote it, it would be more kind of the tradition or the the mindset you had as a recreationalist, like talking about the downsides of dams, did you ever think you would see the positive side, maybe the side that you hadn't seen as a, as a recreationalist?
1: Yeah, I don't think I did. And I think, I mean, it makes it harder to think about. Yes. It's, It's easier you can say this about a lot of things right now. It's really easy to make an argument when you're only looking at one side of it Mm -hmm. and kind of looking at, you know, like when things are simplified, it's really easy to say this is good or this is bad, but that's not really how the world works in a lot of different ways. And that, you know, one of the criticisms of the book has been that there isn't really, I didn't come out of it being like, and this is what we should do. Like there's no sort of like hard and fast conclusion, but I don't think, I mean, I think that's why, you know, people who are way smarter than me have been thinking about this for a really long time. There's not – you have to kind of account for all the subtleties, and that makes everything harder and slower. And there's not an easy answer, but that's the reality, I think.
0: Oh, yeah. I think anybody who comes in and says – this is how it is 100 percent. I mean, maybe there's an exception, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. But yeah. that's just lazy thinking on, on on any subject you want to talk about. That's because there's always a gray area and there's always some somebody could have a different um, idea based on their set of circumstances. And. Like for, for example, I had a guy um, Mike Phillips who runs Ted Turner's Endangered Species Fund on here, and he's been doing the wolf in, reintroduction, and he's you know very pro wolf reintroduction, Montana, Western Colorado, and some people have reached out and asked me what I thought about it, and you know my answer is I I really don't know, and that's that's why I'm, that's why I'm talking to all these people. I mean I see pros and cons on both sides, and I think wolves infuriate people and, uh, water is kind of the other <laughs> big issue that seems to infuriate people. So I, I love the the tone you set because there is, there is no answer.
1: Yeah. I and it's so, so easy. It's so easy. I think that was another kind of big lesson for me is that, you know, I rolled in, especially the agriculture stuff, you know, that was sort of some of the first people I talked to actually on the ground and in this, you know, like I live in a city and this idea of like, oh, well, Ag in Wyoming gets 90% of the water. It's like, well, I can do math. Like, obviously, we should take some of the water out of there and bring it to other places. But then you go talk to these people who have very concrete, and you are know, like these ranchers must be just being flood irrigating their fields because they're lazy and because they want to hold on to their water. And you go up there and talk to these people, and it's like they have thought so carefully and so concretely about every drop of water that they're using and why they do it and what the historical proof is for why they should do it. And it's like the second you're like, oh, this person is really – knows way more about this place than I do and is way smarter than me and has thought about this so much more clearly. Like it breaks down that kind of like, well, this is what, and like, I think the whole sort of big picture thing for me is like, how do we build in flexibility? Mm-hmm. I think that, or you mentioned balance earlier. And I think that idea of like, how do you kind of, no one's going to get what they want all the time. How do you kind of figure out some compromises that can work?
0: Yeah. Definitely. I mean, and it's, it's not easy and it's a lot easier just to say yes or no, or come up with some broad sweeping answer and stick behind it. But there is no right answer and whatever it is, there's going to be winners and losers on both sides. And it's amazingly complicated, but again, your book in like 200 pages, you lay it all out and I, and it, it just makes perfect sense. I actually had to do an interview last week about water rights stuff, and I was like, man, I I read your book this weekend, I was thinking, I wish I'd read that book before, (laughs) because I know a lot more now. Um, So there was one uh, kind of phrase in there that you you talked about, and it's a phrase you hear a lot out here, and it's um, water flows uphill towards money, Mm -hmm. and that kind of loops into what we were talking about, the cities versus rural areas. Can you just talk a a bit about that concept and, and how it plays out in some of these underserved maybe poorer areas of the West?
1: Yeah, that's something that I think that to me feels like it's going to be one of the biggest future water problems and I think sort of research problems in a lot of ways. Um, and I'm probably going to talk myself out of my depth pretty quickly here. But, <laughs> um, but I think this idea that so water is something – this woman that I talked to pretty early up, she's her name's Linda Baker. She's an environmental activist up in Pinedale, Wyoming. And she was like, water's so tricky because water is everybody's and it's nobody's. Mm-hmm. And it's like, everybody needs water like, to live, to exist. And it's sort of, is this collective, it's sort of a classic tragedy of the commons issue Yep. where there's no good way to split it up. And the people who can pay more for it don't necessarily deserve it or need it more. I think that's where sort of, The market breaks down it's going to become increasingly valuable but putting a higher price on that thing there's a pretty big equity issue involved in there yep and i think i don't have my little brother saying my little brother was in town last weekend he's an economist and we've he's kind of tried to talk me through this how you kind of fair you know put fair market value on something like this and it's really hard especially when it when things potentially do get desperate i think it's really hard to keep the value of that thing that everybody needs at a reasonable level and the other side of that is that if you don't put enough value on something people will waste it yes that's a tricky part of this too and there's some places like uh salt lake and utah have pretty low water prices and so there's no incentive to use less and i think people do respond to those kind of market incentives
0: I, I completely agree. Um, I was with uh, last week. I was with Pete McBride, the the filmmaker who's done a lot on the Colorado River, and we were we were interviewing him for some other little projects. And he he said a quote that I'd never heard before by Ben Franklin, and it was, um, "You you know the value of the well when the well runs dry, <laughs> and you know even if they tripled or quadrupled the price of water right now, that would be cheap." that people would be willing to pay that no problem when it, when it runs out.
1: Runs out. And you see that playing out a little bit and you know, California water is like a whole another ball game, but I think you see that playing out a little bit in places in California that are going dry or in places like Flint in Michigan. Oh yeah. Clean water becomes the issue. That's been, you know, it's been interesting talking about this book. and I think probably you've talked about this on the podcast before this idea of like regional books and how the West becomes kind of a region and writing a book about water in the West you feel like you kind of knit yourself a little bit, but water issues are everywhere. And maybe it's not necessarily scarcity is the the biggest thing, but it's kind of like we need, everybody needs clean water to live. How do you make sure that happens? Like who is you, I guess. Oh yeah.
0: My wife um, spent the most of her, has spent most of her career in the international development world Mm -hmm. and doing a lot of different water projects, like where a mining company or something goes in and contaminates the water in a village. And then the villagers, they're just trying to get by but all of a sudden they become militant environmentalists not because they want to feel good about themselves but because their kids are drinking poison water and they have to and um you know when you see that kind of thing it it it's kind of the worst case scenario of what could happen but i i honestly think there is going to be some sort of event out here especially on these front range cities where the water uh, runs out at some point or they turn off these trans basin flows and it's going to be it's going to be a huge wake up call. Do you think yeah. that's going to happen? I do.
1: Um, man. Yeah. That, that gets pretty dark very quickly. It does. It's scary. Yeah. yeah. But I think it's hard not to foresee some kind of really dire circumstance, given how little change there has been. And that people, you know, there's the, um, why am I blanking on the name of this thing right now? Uh, drag contingency plan. Oh
0: yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, that happened this spring, you know, all the um, basin states agreed to take less water, but it's taken them, you know, 50 years basically to even come to a compromise on potentially maybe taking a little bit more. You know, people are so defensive about their water. So there is a little bit of, you know, this idea that the future could get really scary and we're going to have to change the way we do things. But it, the motion is pretty slow. And I think there is, you know, fear is a pretty heavy motivator. Mm hmm. So I think, does it potentially take something really bad happening before people pay attention? Maybe it's hard to, it's hard to imagine otherwise, especially because there's so many things you could care about right now.
0: Sure. So to, to flip it and, and think about the opportunities and the positive things after this huge trip and all your research and all your writing, is there a certain part of, Water in the West and the future that you feel optimistic about now that you you know now that you know everything you know because it's I mean it's again unbelievably complicated but what makes you optimistic about about where we're going?
1: Yeah, my mom read a couple drafts you know when I was working on it and the final draft she was like, can you make the ending a little less depressing? <laughs> <laughs> but, and it's hard, yeah. Like I don't want to be Pollyanna about things, but I think the places that I feel the most hopeful, I think that generation, you know, people. In the water world, talk a lot about kind of water buffaloes and sort of like the old. Don't want to generalize guys, but it tends to be guys. Yeah, it is. Like who historically, had been managing water, were really kind of set in their ways and didn't want to compromise, and didn't want to give up any ground. And I think as, you know, my generation gets older and you know people who grew up with a sort of more con- like conservative conservation ethic. Um, I think there is sort of a generational shift in people's ability to compromise or to have not just stonewall change because we know that things are gonna happen. So there's like, you know, some people who are starting to become players in that world who I feel like are there's a lot of there's a lot of really smart people thinking about this stuff right now. And there are places where, you know, something kind of a small scale, there's people trying to build in water markets or water banks and things like that. You know, there is there are people coming up for thinking about it in creative ways. So that makes me, that gives me some hope that like, I think there is sort of a cultural change.
0: Oh yeah, definitely. And then there was one um, kind of case study you mentioned was, was Las Vegas and, and what they've managed to do, you know, take down their consumption by some huge amount. I can't remember exactly, even as their population has grown.
1: And you should get the podcast. She is a total firecracker. (laughs) Who was that? Say that again. Pat Mulroy. Okay, cool. She was in charge of water in that area for, she now is, she's retired. She's kind of stepped back. I think she's a, she's now a fellow at maybe the University of Nevada or something like that. But she's kind of, she's like a total, you know, if ball busters, great work to use. But she's somebody <laughs> who, you know, is pretty strong in her convictions and came in and changed the framework. You know, they had, going back to the kind of economic thing, they priced, you could get paid for getting rid of your lawn and planting um, like they escaping and planting native plants and there's all these kind of economic incentives for using less water. Um, and you can, I think in those cases, especially money's a pretty, if you have a carrot instead of a stick, you can motivate people to change. And you know, Denver's been, you know, Denver's grown a lot and they haven't, I don't know exactly what the numbers are, but they're not using a ton more water. You know, the per person water use is flat or down in a lot of these places. So I think that, yeah, that's a, that's a good positive. Yeah, I'm
0: with you on the economic incentives. It's kind of a weird comparison, but I think it's accurate. I'm from North Carolina, you know, tobacco central. And they just kept jacking the prices up on the cigarettes. And eventually, you know, there's still a bit of a problem, but the tobacco industry has crumbled. Where I went to school in in Winston-Salem, that whole town was based on tobacco. And it's completely dried up all through jacking the price up on tobacco products. And, um, you know, you think... That, that very quickly forces people to change behavior. And so if it if it can work for something like tobacco, I would think yeah. it would work for water. I don't yeah. know, though.
1: Yeah, water, you know, fossil fuels or that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah it's just getting that, getting that stuff. Yeah, does the market decide it? Does politics decide it? Yeah, this is where I get out of my depth, and I'm not smart enough for this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, no, I totally agree. You have to. There has to be some kind of – people are not – you know, even when we try to do good, I think people are not going to make huge changes just out of the, there has to be some kind of incentive yeah. to make sort of like sweeping changes.
0: Definitely. Definitely. So I want to hear about you personally, because you, you pepper through, you throughout the book, there there personal tidbits peppered throughout, but, um, talk a bit, you're an East coaster like me who ended up out here. Um, how did you, what led you to, after college want to be a river guide?
1: Yeah, I, um, I actually was a river guide through college. Mm-hmm. I went to college in Maine at Colby College, which is right in kind of smack in the middle of Maine. Yeah. Um, and I'm from Massachusetts originally. And the summer after my freshman year of college, I basically just wanted a job where I could be outside. You know, I didn't have any, you know, I was an English major, but I wasn't, I didn't really want a real job. Um, and my mom had randomly, I think at a dinner party or something like that, had met a guy who ran a rafting company in Maine. And she kind of offhand asked him if he hired college kids. And he said yes. Um, And so I, sight unseen, I'd like maybe been on a family rafting trip once or twice. You know, I'd been like sea kayaking a little bit. I was like, sure, I'll be a raft guide. (laughs) And I didn't have a cell phone at the time. It was like pre-cell phone. I didn't have a car. Um, My mom basically drove me to the middle of nowhere, Maine, and like dropped me in a parking lot with my sleeping bag in my tent and a life jacket. And I was like, you know, like, see you in August. (laughs) Like, hope it goes okay. (laughs) Um, and it ended up, it was May in Northern Maine. So it was totally freezing. And, um, that first week was raft guide training is like basically hazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was on the Kennebec river and there's a 12 mile stretch of the Kennebec that has rapids on it. And so we ran that stretch of the river as many times as we could every day. And it was so cold that our wetsuits would freeze overnight. And you know, your body's beat up, you're flipping boats, you're trying to figure out how to understand whitewater. It was just this whole total like you know, grind. Um, and I loved it. It was just kind of like I like kind of like being out and being in charge of people. I love the group of people I was with. That sort of became my, it was my work world, but it was also kind of my friend group. And you know, I really like this kind of like feeling like I understood the river. Um, and so I did that all through college. And then after I graduated, I kind of had this. You know, I wanted to move to the mountains. I wanted to move west. I've been thinking a lot. I'm starting to work on a new book that's about skiing. And so I've been thinking a lot about this kind of like go west young man, manifest destiny thing. Yep. And I, I totally had a chunk of that. Me too. Like, yeah, <laughs> I want to go like, the west, the mountains. Um, and so a guy that I had raft guided with worked in, in Vail um, and got me and a couple of my other friends from college jobs out there. And again, kind of like so I'd been, I did an hour bound trip in high school. So i had been to Colorado a little bit. But I was like, yep, Colorado, great. <laughs> so, this like random raft guide um, got us jobs out there, and I moved west and then started guiding in the Vail Valley on the Arkansas, on the Eagle, which runs through there, and then the Arkansas River, and a little bit on the Colorado. Um, and that, you know, in Maine, everything was dam released. So we got the same amount of water every day. We knew exactly what we were getting. And then I showed up and started guiding on the Eagle, which is the snowmelt river. Yep. And this, like, all of a sudden, this idea of like, oh, we're really dependent on what's coming down from you know what was the snowpack like what's the water going to be like when are we going to have work you know what's my all of a sudden like my livelihood was really tied to how much water we we're going to have so that sort of clicked into this like oh wait rivers are not just this thing that like you're saying the plumbing system that exists all the time
0: sure so when did journalism come into the mix because you, you mentioned your english major but has writing always been a big part of your life? Did you always think you want to be a journalist or did that come out, kind of come out of nowhere? How, how, where did that come in?
1: Yeah, I think I was talking to a high school friend about this recently. And I think cause we had, you know, when we were 15 or 16 we've been talking about this and I think I didn't realize that being a writer, being a journalist was like a job you could really have. Yeah. That that was like something people actually did. <laughs> um, and I, it's been interesting thinking about sort of like, you know, I moved to Colorado in 2005 and sort of how the recession has impacted, you know, jobs and what people want. Yeah, Cause I was just like, I'm going to be outside. I don't really care. I'll figure it out. Um, and then was writing a little bit, you know, there's like a local magazine that I wrote for a little, and I think I always wrote for myself, but like writing something that people would read always felt weird. Uh Um, and I ended up maybe summer of 2008, Eight or 2007 I um blew out my shoulder kayaking oh wow um and I was supposed to go it was the end of the kind of river season in Colorado and I was supposed to go to West Virginia to guide there I'd been going there um in the fall to guide on the golly and um was all of a sudden like oh maybe this sort of like seasonal thing is not a great idea like what if I'm kind of totally dependent on what my body can do what's that going to look like as I get older, you know, do I want to be doing this kind of like switching seasonal dirt bag jobs forever. Um, and I got an internship in a magazine at Freeskier magazine, which is in Boulder. Yep. Um, and totally that wasn't Freeskier Wasn't exactly my scene, but like the whole kind of idea of like putting a magazine together and pitching stories and kind of di- like digging into ideas. I really loved. And I was like, okay, I think this might be the thing. So I applied to journals in school that winter when I was kind of hurt and recovering um, and got in and showed up at CU, you know, I had this magazine internship, but I hadn't, you know, I hadn't published much or written much and kind of like fumbled my way through it from there.
0: Was, was that a good experience? Grad school? Cause I, I've had a lot, I have a lot of creatives on the podcast and it seems yeah. like it's about half and half of folks that really, really gained a ton from school. And then the others who said, ah, I could take it or leave it. It, it wasn't yeah. that big a deal. What, what was it for you?
1: I think, I go back and forth on it a lot. Um, and I think, you know, the tricky things you are like, I'm doing the thing now. It's put me on that path. Yeah. But I think that I could have a lot of the value I got out of that was internships and was just taking a year and a half to make myself write as much as possible mm-hmm. and to kind of figure out what it looked like to pitch stories and what it looked like to kind of figure out sources. So yeah, I don't think I would push anyone. It worked out for me, but I don't think I would push anyone to journalism school. And, but I would fumbling and trying to figure out what
0: I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, I think given that getting that push to whether you're writing or painting or creating, you know, any sort of creating, having almost given yourself permission to do it every day and do it a lot, that's, that could be worth the cost of, of grad school, you know, just, just block, you know, giving you yourself permission to, to do that. And so thinking about that, when you wrote this book, I can't imagine how hard it must've been. Um, I mean, what was that process like? Did you work on it the same time every day or you set a timer and work on a certain number of hours or how, how did that work actually getting it on paper?
1: Yeah. And I think it's, I think it's permission and I think it's also pressure. Yeah. (laughs) I talk to a lot of people, especially it's funny. You write a book and all of a sudden people are like, you must know things you wrote a book. (laughs) So people are asking me more about, how to do it. And i talked to a lot of people who are like, yeah, you know, I like sort of have this idea and maybe I want to write a book. And the hard part about writing a book is like sitting your butt down and like doing the writing Yeah, and making yourself, even if you don't feel like it, like forcing yourself to open the word document or open the notebook and like just put some words down. And so I, Oh, I'm like a total crazy person about how I structure my days, the timing part of it for me, I think, cause especially freelancing and having really kind of long, loose deadlines can be really, can, I need some structure in my day to make it work. So I give myself a commute. I go for like my little walk around the neighborhood. I read my book for a little bit and then I'll, I'll often I'll set a timer and make myself, you know, be like, okay, an hour, sit down, turn off the internet, really, you know, really work. Like I have to pay, play games with myself or, like, trick myself into, you know, putting myself in my chair and opening the computer and doing it. Because it is, like, the writing is the hard part of writing.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I've never published a book. But just any anytime I have to write anything, even, like, grant proposals for work, it's <laughs> – I just have to get myself psyched up or, or force myself in this, by doing some weird routine to, to make it what happen. What are your weird routines? What do you do? A lot of it is – is uh, turning off every, every kind of distraction there is. And, um, you know, phone, internet, email, everything and setting a timer. And I I normally do 90 minutes and -hmm. just force myself to start typing, like even if it doesn't even make any sense, just random words, but just force myself to start typing. And it seems, I mean, it seems to help. And then once I get the momentum going, I'm good and it's fine. But it's that, it's like pushing a rock up a very very slight hill and it's just so damn hard at first and then once you get going it's fine but that's like my entire life okay. <laughs> like running yeah. writing working everything it's just this just
1: yeah once just you're going it's fight so bad at the beginning like, yeah. <laughs> it's like open the word document just look at yeah. the word
0: just just go um do you have any heroes or maybe mentors that you've admired over the years in journalism or writing books or or it doesn't have to be in that world at all, just people that you've admired that have kind of helped shape your career and your life?
1: Yeah, I have. Um, I don't feel like I have like a one mentor, or like one person that um, I super look up to, but I have a really good peer group Mm -hmm. like I feel like I guess mentor wise Megan Michelson who was um she's now a freelance writer she worked for ESPN for a long time she's based in Tahoe hired me at Skiing Magazine when I was an intern and she's somebody you know she's only a couple years older than me but she's been somebody who's really done a really good job of sort of like bringing giving you know when she sees opportunities throwing them at me giving them um you know being really sort of Encouraging and aware. And I think that um, there's now a pretty good, I feel like I have a really good group of sort of like people that I can talk to for advice or, or maybe it's sort of, you know, freelancing can be a really weird thing because there's no right way to do it. Yeah. And so, you know, this group of people who are kind of on similar trajectories like that um, and are now Axie Navas, who's outside, is somebody who I am always really sort of impressed by and look at. And she's been a really good sort of editor editor and I know she's a really good mentor for people in in her world Sierra Davis is now the editor of powder there's a really cool yeah I feel like my I'm sort of like always impressed by my friends
0: <laughs> that's good that's a good place yeah. to be that's awesome um and so one more question about your your journalism career was there you know you it, it seems like you've been you've kind of you've worked at magazines but then you've also done freelancing and was there a, a point when you finally were like all right I know I can do this for for a full time job for, you know, I can make a living as a writer, because I would think that's a big, a big leap, to, a, a big um, milestone, I guess, when you know, like, all right, this can be my career. Was there a moment when like a particular story that you published or maybe this book? Or was it as it is it a just kind of been a slow grind of, of working as hard as you can for or are you not not even there yet in your mind? I mean, yeah. where do you stand <laughs> in that?
1: Um that's a really good question because I think it is sort of like an always evolving like oh I'm doing this I'm a grown-up yeah. <laughs> you and read even, my like, mind book,
0: again <laughs> you're like, yeah you're like
1: you're like oh I wrote a like it's a real thing it's a book yes um and do you ever listen to the long form podcast
0: I've heard of it, but I haven't listened to it,
1: is oh, it's it good? My, yeah it's really it's it's interviews with writers and journalists So if you're nerdy about that kind of thing it's oh, really cool, cool. And there's a guy, called Jefferson, who I think he now writes for TV, but he'd been a magazine writer. Um, and they were kind of asking him that question. And he was like, you know, I get to say writer on my taxes. And like, that feels really good. <laughs> and that was, I think I was in that in like my early days of freelancing. And I was like, yeah, yeah, that thing. <laughs> so I think it is. I mean, I think like I was saying earlier, that whole being, a, being freelance, especially there's no kind of markers of like, you achieved this level, like unlock next thing. So you kind of have to it has to come from the inside. Yeah. I think a lot of, like we were talking about earlier, a lot of stuff, a lot of change comes from fear. So I'm always like, on some level, it would be nice to feel like I'm really stable, but I like the instability a little bit.
0: Well, so I've got a few questions that I ask everybody on the podcast and it's cool to compare all the answers. Um, and so if we can run through those real quick and then I'll let you get back to your stuff. um, Do you have any favorite books about the West, any particular books that come to mind that are your kind of go-to books that you recommend to people about the West?
1: Mm -hmm. I, um, I, Ellen Malloy is kind of my touchstone for a lot of things about sort of about writing about the West and about writing about the outside world and like making yourself a character in books. Um, and she Raven's exile, which is her book. Her husband was actually a river ranger on the green. So it's her book about being on the green with him. Cool. It's probably my all-time favorite book about anything and everything. Have you read that?
0: No, I've never read that. And, That's awesome. Uh, you have
1: to. It's I really. Um, she's really funny. Nice. And I think a lot of sort of like, especially sort of you know, nonfiction land use issues, that kind of thing, can be really sort of dry and stuffy. And she's like the exact opposite of that. Cool. So she's always something that I go to. Um, I I feel like I've been reading a bunch of stuff about the border and immigration recently. That's just sort of been in my wheelhouse. Um, and the Faraway Brothers, which is Lauren Markham, mm-hmm. which is about um, two kids from El Salvador. She was actually she worked at a high school in California, and she came across these kids and sort of then tried to help shepherd them through. And that's just a really, I think she's just such a good writer, and that is one of those books that kind of. I think she does like the history and the current events and the policy and the people and kind of weaves those together. So well, that's mm. one I think like everyone, everyone should read.
0: <laughs> that's a new one to me as well. So I'll, I'll have links to all these on the, on the webpage. What's your favorite book of all time?
1: My favorite book of all time. Oh man, that's such a hard question. Yeah.
0: I don't really have any, actually yeah. I, I have a very clear answer.
1: What's yours? <laughs>
0: the Rise of Theodore Roosevelt by Edmund oh, Morris. Okay. I love yeah.
1: It. <laughs> I, you know, for a long time, I told people it was the Monkey wrench Gang, mm-hmm. and then I reread it recently, and it, like, didn't resonate as much. Interesting. So I think, yeah, I think it's, like, you've always got to be evolving. Um, oh, what are my wait? what's my, I, it kind of the Arch Druid.
0: That's a good one. I that's, love
1: that one. That's, like, top of the list, big time.
0: Yeah, that's um, good from every angle, you know, from the, from the yeah. message, the message. And, it, and it, it, ta- it it hits on a lot of stuff we've been talking about here about how there are two sides to every yeah. every story. And maybe that's – I wonder if your your experience on the river caused the Monkey wrench gang not to be as cool because you can see the other side of things more clearly now. Yeah.
1: And I think the character – you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier about, like, it tends to be guys who are the center of that, those yes. kinds of stories, even if they're fiction. And his female characters are pretty thin. Like, they're kind of props. Mm-hmm.
0: That's interesting. That's cool. I'm with you. I I think it'd be weird if everything stayed the same. You want to be evolving. You know, you don't want to have the same favorite thing forever. That means you're not other than like family.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Like those people are changing too. Yeah. Um, Um, I was thinking, uh, fiction wise, have you read there there? no, I have not. That's one of them. That's like one of my favorite books recently too. Who wrote that? It's Tommy Orange. Okay. Um, and it's about, he calls them urban Indians in the Bay area. And they're sort of, there's like 10 or 12 characters who are all interwoven. It's, it's really sort of like complicated. All the pieces come together at, at the end. One of those kind of fiction always blows my mind. Like, I don't know how people weave those stories, like make up these stories and weave them together. And he's just, as a writer, I think he's doing stuff like linguistically that nobody else is doing.
0: Cool. I'll check that out. Cause I'm always looking for. Fiction. I, I for some reason I always have a problem focusing in on fiction. But if mm-hmm. I find one that I love, I can't put it down. Like yeah. I recently read a lot of uh, Peter Heller's work.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. God
0: it's so good. It's yeah, so good. Dog
1: Stars and, Dog Stars is up there for me.
0: Yeah. Uh, Dog Stars and then he's got a new one that I haven't read yet called The River. Yeah. It's um,
1: I didn't that's maybe not my favorite of his, but really? it's the plot was a little spotty for me, but yeah, but he's he's just, like, on a sentence level. I think he's so good.
0: Yeah, he, he's great. He seems super cool. Um, do you have any favorite documentaries or films that you've enjoyed?
1: Um, You know, it's interesting. We were talking about, you know, Patagonia and the dam removal stuff and their damnation, which they came out a couple of years ago. Yeah, which was, I have
0: not seen that. I know what you're talking
1: it's about. It's really – it's not it, – yeah, it's not maybe subtle and getting into all the parts of the issues, but it's really – it's like smart and funny and has an opinion. And the guys, it's Ben Night and Felt Soul Media, the guys who did that and that. I just feel like they. It's like one of those like documentaries that doesn't feel heavy. It feels fun. Um, so I really love that they have a they have one that came out. It's like on the film circuit now too called Life of Pie. Okay. Which about uh, the woman who run the hot tomato pizza place in Fruta, Colorado. Oh, yeah, yeah, I saw the trailer it's for that. So good. Yeah, it's so funny. Cool. What those guys? I will always look at what those guys do. Awesome. Um,
0: so I normally ask people what the the scary or the most powerful experience they've ever had in the outdoors is, but I want to ask what was the most, what was the scariest thing that happened on your river trip down the Green?
1: Yeah, I had um, one. Well, there's there's maybe two that <laughs> makes sense, but the um, the sort of physically scariest one, I. Um, most of the there's a couple kind of rapids in the very first section and then you get into pretty flat water for a pretty long period of time it's mellow paddling and then the first kind of real rapids that i hit by myself and my pack raft were right below flaming gorge dam okay um and you drop in. it's this really beautiful canyon um and it's kind of crazy because the water's crystal clear below the dam it's like this totally alien environment um and there people fish, there's pretty good fly fishing, like right below the dam. Yep. So there's a lot of people who run that first section, you know, eight or nine miles. And then they all take off at the first put in, and then you're kind of in this canyon totally by yourself. Um and I had gone and talked to some guys at a fly fishing shop before I put on just to kind of get a feel, you know, the water was pretty high. I wanted to get a sense of like what the river was like. And this guy was like, Oh, you know, Red Creek, which is like the one big rapid below where everyone takes off. He's like, Red Creek's really big right now. And the other day, these guys lost a drift boat there. They swamped it, and it sunk. And, like, I guess we'll have to get it in the fall when the river goes down. And so I kind of came in by myself for the first time with, like, this image in my head of, like, these guys, you know, swamped their boat and could have drowned in this rapid. Um, And pulled off and was trying to scout the the rapid, and I couldn't really see it, and I was by myself. And it's, I think that was sort of the scariest part, was the, like, you don't have anyone else to make a judgment call with. Yep. So you're kind of out there being like, is it, should I try and portage this? Should I try and run it? Is it stupid? If I die here, will anyone even, you know, it'll be two days before even anyone even realizes that I'm off the grid. I feel like that was sort of, and it ended up, I ended up kind of running a sneak line around the rapid after, you know, sitting there for probably an hour trying to decide. But that was sort of like one of the, this kind of idea where you're like, I'm out here and it's like, there's nobody but me. Yeah. <laughs> could be really stupid. That's
0: scary. That's yeah. really scary. It's, it's scary. Just thinking about the actual, it would have been scary if you were with friends, but yeah. being there and trying to figure it out on your own with nobody to throw ideas off of and get, at least I, I would get so deep inside my own head on that. I'd okay. probably go crazy.
1: Yeah. And you're like, is this a really, am I just way, did I like get myself, did I sign up for something that I stupidly? <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> and then did you have any weird encounters with people?
1: Um, for the most part, Everyone was actually totally wonderful. That's cool. Yeah, which I think is kind of, especially, you know, to kind of go back to the woman traveling alone thing. I think as a a woman, you do just have to be a little more cautious or a little bit more skeptical of people. Um, And, you know, I ended up leaving my keys in the car and having to get a ride with some random hitchhiker or like hitchhike with some random guy. And I was like, there's a point where I was like, oh man, I'm, nobody knows where I am. And I'm like up dirt road in Norrisville, Wyoming with this like strange man. So there definitely were some, like some moments like that where your radar goes up a little bit. But, um, trying to think of probably the most, the weirdest, most interesting person I met is this guy, um, George, who I think he no longer lives in Vernal, Utah, but he was there for a while and he owns a, um, a seat cover store and a juice bar and a nail salon. Wow. On this like strip mall in Vernal, Utah. Um, And he (laughs) diversified. Yeah. yeah, (laughs) like everything you need. Um, and I think he moved there from Salt Lake and he decided that he needed like a marketing, you know, kind of some kind of marketing ploy. And so he made this huge sign that says, I love drilling. And it's like a big red, it's like the, I love New York sign. The guy drilling. And he stands on the street corner basically every day and like waves the sign and has become like the local, he looks like he's like, a, looks like the Marveler man basically. And he's out there on the corner. And I had been, I ended up being in Vernal for basically two weeks because the way my permits worked out. And like the whole time I was like, I got to talk to this guy. I got to talk to this guy. And I'd kind of been avoiding it. Cause I, you know, I didn't want to go be like, I'm writing this book about water use. Tell me about drilling. And he ended up being at one point, he was like, Hey, I don't know you, what you, what's your deal? Like kind of called me over and ended up like having this big chat with this guy he was like, I'm an environmentalist. I love rivers. You know, like I'm a hippie <laughs> he, you know, was like, had become like this local celebrity for the drilling industry. And so that's cool. the total, total character and, you know, on a, on a different planet for me, but super friendly. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome.
0: Um, so if you had to narrow it down to one, and this is a answer or a question I do not have an answer to yet, I still ask people, do you have a favorite location in the West?
1: Oh, that's such a hard question. <laughs> you um, don't have to.
0: You don't have to come yeah. in if you don't want.
1: Um, I so I was in Moab a couple of weeks ago. I had a, a reading there, and I I feel like that's one of those places. When I live in Colorado, we would go there in the spring a lot. I went there as a kid a bit, and there's a canyon, um, kind of upstream in the Colorado. That's a pretty easy little day hike, but you can kind of split out from it and go backpacking <laughs> I was I went back there and hiked up there when I was back it's kind of one of those places I always go to and I this is maybe a weird story but um I when I was living in Boulder I got assigned a story that was a profile of a life coach
0: uh-huh.
1: um and this woman who was a life coach would take people backpacking and sort of like help them figure out their lives Um, And I was totally skeptical of this. You know, it's like very bouldery. Oh, definitely. I lived in Boulder. Yeah. (laughs) What even is a life coach? Um, And so I ended up going on this backpacking trip with these women. We went to Moab. We went up this same canyon and kind of, you know, pushed up a little bit. And we did all these kind of like drawing mandalas in the sand and all these sort of like woo-woo exercises. (laughs) You know, I was like eye rolling the whole time. Um, And then we, she had us the last day like go off and like write down our goals or our life things. And that was the first time I'd ever written down or said that I wanted to write a book. Oh, wow. Like on this life coach retreat that I was totally skeptical of. Wow. I was like, something out of that. <laughs> so it's funny. I was back there, you know, before last, I was like, Oh yeah, this was the first place that I like really thought about a book.
0: Is the book dedicated to the life coach?
1: I don't think I can even tell you the life coach's <laughs> name anymore.
0: <laughs> that's, well, that's cool. That's a cool story though.
1: Sometimes that stuff works and it's some you know, it's a place I had said before, but that's I'm awesome. Kind of like, oh, yeah. I have forgotten about that. <laughs>
0: um, well, last question. Um, if knowing everything you know about the West and seeing everything, you know, kind of both sides of these arguments with water and then with other issues, um, if, if you could make a request of the people listening to this podcast or offer some words of wisdom or ask them to do something, you know, the, the people that listen to this podcast, they just love the West in one way or one way or another. Um, does anything come to mind when, when I ask that question?
1: If you're going to be dumb you, gotta, dumb, you gotta be tough. No, um, I love that. I think, yeah, I know my dad would be very proud, but I think for me, the, or like the, the biggest thing that I got out of this book project or the thing that I kind of keep going back to is like, don't you know, don't stay in your lane, you know, talk to people. Don't just, it's so easy now, I think, especially with the way we get news too, or, you know, social media, it's so easy to just kind of like reinforce your own beliefs and just read things or just talk to people who think the same way you do. Um, and that's been the most valuable lesson out of this for me is that like, oh, people who think super, super, super differently than me aren't wrong or aren't stupid. They're just coming at it really differently. And I think that takes some, it takes some inertia to get to that point these days, I think, to kind of get out of that, get out of that headspace and to talk to people who are coming from a really different angle. But that feels super important and just really interesting right now.
0: I couldn't agree more with that. I think that that was one of the main takeaways I got from the book, just as a way, you know, kind of a a operating system for thinking about things is just understand that there are both sides they there good people on both sides of the argument it's worth considering even if you end up landing where you were before i think it's worth considering all sides so i again i i really thank you for writing that book i loved it and i hope people will, will order a lots of lots of copies of it because it's it's great and how can people kind of follow your work connect with you or you i know you're a little bit online
1: I'm a little bit online. yeah, I'm trying to this is the hard part of being online versus like making yourself write things. <laughs> it feels like you can't do both. Yes. Um, but I'm H Hansman on most social medias on Instagram, on twitter, heatherhansman.com. I have a list of events, like both events that I'm doing that have tapered off a little bit, but I'm coming back to Colorado and Utah a bit in the fall. So yeah, I'm in Washington for a bit. so yeah, i'm on I'm on the internet. Cool. (laughs) Well, good luck with everything and thank you so much. Thank you. This has been great. Hey, it's
0: Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to itunes and give it a five-star review all those things would mean a lot to me and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast number two if you've listened to many of these episodes you know that i love reading and i love talking about books every other month i send out a quick email with a few books that i've recently read and highly recommend the subjects are varied but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history biographies adventure narratives and topics related to the american west